I fought a good fight. I finished my football race. And after 18 years, it's time. Basketball players, we're really supposed to shut up and dribble, but I'm glad, I'm glad we do a little bit more than that. Eventually, every ball would go flat. But that doesn't mean that your life will flatline. What will you do when the game is over? Welcome to episode 44 of World Bible's Endless Hustle. I am your host, Matt Cohan, and I also have a very good co-host, and his name is Arthur Cade. We have two great guests today, two different sports at the top of their game. One of them is NASCAR driver and three-time Daytona 500 champion, Denny Hamlin. Another guy holds a dear place in my heart because he is a New England Patriot. He has been a long time, a New England Patriot all-decade team, and his name is Lawrence Guy. What was your outlook on this episode, Artie? First of all, I can't believe we made it to episode 44. We are now officially older than I am, so that's pretty cool. That's, that's number one. Yeah, I'll be 43 in May, and Endless Hustle is now older than me. Number two, Danny Hamlin, superstar, both ends. Driver, he's number one in NASCAR right now, killing it, having an insane year. Awesome. By the way, he's also the co-owner of a team with Michael Jordan, and they have Bubba Wallace as their driver. So Denny is doing it both on the racetrack and off the racetrack. That's so cool. So pretty awesome there. He's the fourth driver to win back-to-back -back Daytona 500s in NASCAR history. We talked to him all about why Daytona is his race. I love that he's a big basketball fan, Matt. Longtime partnership with the Jordan brand. And his story about how him and MJ linked up to start this ownership team was just phenomenal. Blew me away. And he's also in North Carolina. We actually interviewed him before LaMelo Ball got injured. And LaMelo is obviously the front runner for the Rookie of the Year up until that injury. But I love just hearing his outlook on the Hornets, his love of the NBA. You know, anytime we can talk to an athlete at Denny's level, but also understand the interests that they have outside of what they're doing, I love that. I'd have to agree with you there, Artie. So without further ado, here is the great Denny Hamlin. NASCAR superstar, three-time Daytona 500 champ, Denny Hamlin. Denny, happy to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. No problem. Thanks for making the time. We know you're a busy man on top of your day job as a pro driver, father of two. Now your business partners with Michael Jordan, the mastermind behind 2311. How have you been able to manage that workload? Uh, just trying to set aside certain times and days for each project. Um, you know, typically... My Sundays and Mondays are designated to the 11 car. Tuesday, Wednesday is usually the 23. And then it's a little bit of a mix of both on Thursday. And then Friday and Saturday, I shift back to the 11. So it just kind of depends um, on the day. But ultimately, there's always some issues that arise uh, on the ownership side where they need a question answered that you, that you need to say yes or no to. Um, but, you know, again, I just try to make sure that uh, I give the same focus that I've had to the 11 car you know, for all of my career, uh, I'm doing those things the same. The 23 just has to fit in between all those cracks. Danny, obviously when you, Bubba and MJ came together and brought this whole thing together, it broke the internet. Incredible news, changed NASCAR. Walk me to the beginning of it. How did that thing all start? Gosh, it's a long, long story, but the, the long and the short of it was, you know, I just feel like 
you know, there's some speculation going on about, you know, myself purchasing uh, a stake in another race team. Uh, that didn't really seem like the best option for me. Um, and, you know, so there were some speculative uh, news articles that were coming out and his name was thrown in there. And, and of course, that none of that was true, but I, I just sent him a message saying, you know, it looks like we're business partners, you know, LOL. And he was like, well, that's not true, but if you want to make it true, let me know. So, you know, his interest was, hey, are you going to be a team owner or not? If you are, then I would like to partner with you. So I said, well, I'm not, but I would like to be, you know, and, you know, maybe we can make it happen. So uh, he, he obviously was a big part of that uh, coming true and it happened very, very quickly. But, um, you know, again, we're learning it together. Uh, we're going to grow it together. Um, this is not a, a one-year play or two-year play or five-year play. We're looking to build this thing into something big over, over time. And uh, we'll see how it all plays out. So you slid into Michael Jordan's DMs is what you're telling yeah. me. <laughs> Just a casual slide. Hey, buddy, you want to be an owner with me? <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I never forget you know, where I was and what I was doing. I was actually on the ninth hole at a golf course. And I'd left my ball sitting in the middle of the fairway. I, I, w I drove up to the green because I was on the phone. And absolutely, I just forgot to hit my ball. I was so um, excited with the conversation that was going on. And you're a big basketball guy, right? You grew up loving Jordan. So this must have been extra surreal for you. Yeah, 100%. I mean, you know, I've had a relationship with the Jordan brand for uh, 12 years now. You know, it really started from a conversation that I had uh, with Mike White of Hornets game, you know, 12 years ago. And, you know, he's, he's a huge race fan and, and obviously uh, very intense when it comes to the competition side of things. So, uh, yeah, I, I started – being a fan of the NBA, you know, way back in the day, but I never really went to games until, you know, 2008 or nine. And, uh, you know, since then, I, I just, I, I love the sport, love going to, to the games. They're very, very exciting to watch in person. And so it's been a lot of fun to, to enjoy that sport and, and see how it all plays out. Being in business together, I'd imagine you guys don't always see eye to eye on everything. How has that business relationship been thus far? Well, it's been good. Uh, a lot of it is, you know, they trust uh, myself on the competition side, figuring out what we need to, to go fast, you know, using me to, you know, uh, be the liaison between JGR and the team itself. So I, I think that that's all been good. We, we've shared the same visions. We haven't had any uh, yes, no votes uh, when it comes to, you know, certain things that we, we have to get or, or certain visions that we have as a team. So that that's been pretty easy so far but uh again we're, we're so early into this and you know, we're still in the growing stages i grew up loving mj i can't even imagine what it's like to have a personal relationship with him do you ever find yourself geeking out i mean obviously there's the business aspect do you ever take a step back and think michael jordan is my friend and business partner i get to play golf with him i get to do stuff that people would only dream up with michael jordan you know, I, I've, I've known him so long now that I, I it doesn't, I, in the beginning, yes, but not now. It's just, it's, again, he's just a, a guy that I, I have a business relationship with and, and friendship with. It is certainly surreal when you think about all, you know, how big of a fandom he is of the sport and, and really of myself. He's, he showed up to multiple championship races that I've had an opportunity to win, and he did it just out of good faith and friendship. So, I think that uh, it's awesome that, you know, you have someone that's arguably the greatest of all time in any sport being able to support you and having that close relationship with them. So, 
yeah, I mean, there's the times that I step back that you, you look at it and say, you know, it's pretty amazing how everything's worked out. We always hear the the competitive stories of MJ. There's probably no more legendary a competitor than Jordan. When you play golf with him, like there was a story that just went viral. I think he was playing spades with Antoine Walker or Dice, I forget, and they were down 900,000 and he canceled his comeback press conference. I mean, that stuff is only Michael Jordan can get away with that. What are some experiences you've had with him, whether it's on the golf course or anywhere else where you've gotten to see the MJ intensity? I mean, I mostly see it on the golf course because that's where, you know, that's the only time I see him in a competitive environment now. Um, but I mean, the guy's just ruthless. I mean, he, he doesn't, he has no pressure. Obviously we know that he doesn't feel much pressure, but I mean, yeah, he'll, he, he'll make a 30 foot putt on you that you think you, you know, you're counting your money winning that hole and he's, he'll make something that's just incredible uh, to, to keep himself alive. So that's really the competitive nature that I see from him. Other than that, it's just all, all business. And, and, you know, that that's really the shift I've seen in him over the last six months is talking business with him versus just, Hey, when are we going to go play golf? I remember you said you played a 36 hole round with him in like three hours or something. Is that true? Well, three, yeah, three, three, 10 per, per 18. That typically is his normal day is he'll start at nine. Um, and he'll, he'll start his second round by one o'clock and be done at four, you know, four thirty. So he, he gets in 36 most days, you know, he handles all of his phone calls and stuff like that early in the morning with his team. And, and then he goes off to the golf course. So, yeah, he's uh, he's got a good good speed when it comes to to golf. He doesn't mess around. His his golf carts at the course are like run about 35, 40 miles an hour. So, uh, yeah, you can get down around pretty quick with him. I want to talk to you about the Daytona 500. That's your race. What is it about that race that there's a reason that you keep winning? Well, we've had great success there. I think I've been very fortunate to miss a lot of the wrecks that have happened, uh, especially the big ones that take out you know, the bulk of the cars, you know, I don't know what it is. I, I think that I do understand, you know, probabilities. I think I understand, you know, odds of, okay, this, if you're in sixth position, you're most likely to get caught in a wreck. So six, you know, six through 14th is just the hot bed area of trouble. Um, making sure I'm not in those positions, you know, can I lay to the back until we go through a pit sequence then try to be good on pit road to get myself ahead of that sixth position to not put myself in that hornet's nest. And sometimes you have to drive through there and you hope to get lucky that the, the wreck doesn't happen during that time. But I think I just have a feel for when things are getting anxious and, and I, and I get out of it or I get in front of it before it happens. So I think, you know, there's odds are that we could wreck out of the next sixth and we still, you know, the odds would still be in our favor because, you know, we've been on such a run for the last, I think, eight years now uh, on, in that race. So, you know, it's it just, it's fortune, it's, it's lucky, uh, and it's also just, you know, I think being smart and trusting your instincts. We had Ryan Blaney on the show a couple weeks ago, and he obviously got caught up in that recent Daytona 500 massive wreck. When you're a driver and you see that happen, what's your reaction? Are you kind of goose-tailing it and like, oh, thank God it ain't, get into that situation what kind of is going through your head not being part of it well i think that i looked at the first one and i was like wow well this was easy i mean half the competitive cars took themselves out on lap 12 so i'm looking around and i'm thinking 
wow, my odds of winning this race have just now gone up pretty heavy. You know, I, I've got, you know, probably 12 fast competitive cars that we're going to have to race in this thing. You know, anytime that the, the pack gets double file, I feel like I, I, I can get to the front. As long as there's air that's being disturbed, I can find my way to the front. But, you know, when they ran the single file line there at the end, it, it, it certainly made it a lot more difficult uh, to do anything. But, uh, yeah, it's just I look at it and I say, you know, fortunately I wasn't in it. Hopefully I'm not in the next one that happens. But, you know, that race was pretty tame after that first uh, big pileup that took out a lot of cars. I think it made some people apprehensive. And really with less cars being competitive on the racetrack, you know, we didn't see as many crazy bold moves until the very end of the race. Denny, Mike Joy from Fox Sports recently tweeted that NASCAR is kind of full of racers who've gotten a big leg up due to legacy, and they feel like they're owed something because of it. Obviously, there are data points that can you can use for both arguments, but what is your take on the barrier to entry in the sport if you weren't born into it? It's hard. It, it's just a very hard sport. It's so different than other sports where you just can't buy a set of uh, shoulder pads and helmets and cleats and your talent's going to take you the rest of the way. You can't just buy a set of golf clubs and you go out and win every tournament. That guarantees you you're going to make it onto the PGA Tour. Racing isn't like that. You can win every race, and there's no guarantee you're going to move any further than where you're at at that point. Uh, there's no you know, real recruiting process. Uh, there's no scholarships. It just takes dollars. And so you have to it, – it's a balance because the, the uh, financial business side of this of racing is not good for the team owners. And so what they have to do is they have to try to find a way to survive. And sometimes to try to find a way to survive, they have to take on a driver who brings money with them because that allows them to keep going. Otherwise they shut down. So it's, it's a tough business. And until that changes, until these race teams uh, have enough money to uh, sustain and compete on their own without sponsorship, you will continue to have the same argument 20 years from now uh, until the teams are able to hire whatever best driver is available, not which one brings the most money. You're going to have the same argument 20 years from now. Yeah. In sports like basketball and soccer, all you need is a ball and a net. Do you think there are steps that NASCAR can take to make the sport more accessible and hence kind of grow the audience? There are. Um, I don't know that really I can discuss them because I'm on the ownership side now as well as the driver's side, but there are, there, there are some steps that NASCAR could take to, to help the teams out uh, and, and fix some of the issue for sure. But also this, these teams are in a competitive business and they're going to do whatever it takes. And if you give them, um, if they have $5 and if you give them eight, they're going to spend eight to, to win. So it's, it's how can you get these teams to police themselves and, and to, to not, you know, overspend to stop, you know, essentially killing themselves off to try to win. Uh, that's going to be a tough thing to police. Um, other sports have salary caps. Um, NASCAR does not. I think, you know, it's a good thing that it doesn't. But it certainly, you know, the healthier the teams are, the, the, the more that they can um, spend to, to, to go get that star driver that's going to make them a race winner. And the, really the more the – common the cars get, the more the driver is going to matter. So everyone's going to be going after the same person. And that essentially drives up the value of that guy. So that's, it's just kind of a, a domino effect that, that happens all starting around the race teams being healthy. Hollywood loves you guys, Danny. 
Kevin James just released his show, The Crew, on Netflix. Obviously, the legendary movies like Talladega Nights, Days of Thunder. There have been just some incredible racing movies. If you got to make a movie and work with one specific actor or actress in that movie, who do you want to work with? Uh, Denzel Washington. Not that I, I know what role he'd play or anything like that, but he's just he is my rock star of, uh, of movie guys. It's just... I've never watched a bad Denzel movie, so I, I, I would love he, – he'd be the one person, honestly, that I would geek out over meeting. Training Day just came out on Netflix, and I watched it again. I just remember how oh. – I mean – Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> That's literally what I was thinking. I would love to take the Training Day character and bring him <laughs> into NASCAR. Yeah. That would just be pure gold. Yes, 100%. Our, our people will talk to your people, Denny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Danny, I want to talk a little bit about the iRacing series craze that set esports viewing records on Fox. You were a big part in orchestrating that and fully committed with that $40,000 simulator. How closely does that mirror an actual race and why were you racing barefoot? Yeah, I mean, I, I do. Well, first, the barefoot thing, I, I do it just for feel. I think if, if drivers, if heat weren't an issue, most, most drivers would race, you know, barefoot or with socks on simply because you can feel the pedal. Uh, quite a bit better yeah that's why I do that at home but uh, yeah it was a big uh, undertaking to get all the drivers to commit to to go on out there and doing iRacing you know I think we're gonna have 10 races or something like that this year uh, again so it's gonna be uh, crazy to see how it all plays out but um, yeah it's it's gonna be a big part of our schedule and show now is is since we're not at the racetrack full-time we're gonna be you know doing iRaces on Friday nights or Saturday nights so I think it starts in just a couple of weeks. I've not been on my simulator at all <laughs> since last year's races. So uh, I got to get some warm up and, and figure out, uh, you know, how to get uh, back to, to victory in those things. I, I won a couple of them last year, but I, I feel like I was more prepared than what I am right now. Didn't your daughter turn off the, the simulator at one point or something? She did. Yeah. She, uh, she had a remote. She was playing a stop pause game, basically, you know, you know, people were wondering well, why she have a remote. Well, she found one in the kitchen junk drawer and everyone's got a junk drawer. And I don't even know that I didn't, first of all, there's a 20% chance it has batteries in it. And there's only another 10% chance that the batteries are actually good or charged, but she just kept playing a game with everyone saying, you know, if I hit, if you hit pause, then you have to stop. If she hits mute, you have to stop talking. If she hits the power button, you have to disappear. And so she was just carrying around this remote all day. And, and of course, uh, my monitors were Samsung uh, monitors and she had a Samsung universal remote. She hit the power and it, it turned them all off. We spoke with Ryan Blaney and he, he shocked me. He said he's never peed his suit mid-race. I didn't believe him. But can you <laughs> confirm or deny that this is an epidemic in NASCAR soiling yourself? <laughs> yeah, I, I never have. I, again, I've never done it, but uh, I might know a few people that have. <laughs> well, I admit it I think yeah it happens um, you know it's part of what we do and the challenges of what we do is hydration so we have to try to pound all the water that we can in a very short amount of time and, and we try to prepare you know even days ahead of time for how you know hot it's going to be in the race car so of course you know anytime you drink a lot you're, you're going to have to use the bathroom quite a bit and so it's a balancing act of you know when to get in the car after you've, you know, gone and, you know, or can you hold it another three or four hours? 
You've had an unbelievable career so far, Danny, but you have not been able to put champion next to your name yet. When you eventually do, what's that celebration going to look like? Do you have it mapped out in your head? <laughs> I don't. I, I like to be a day-by-day person where, like, I deal with every day and, you know, what we accomplished, you know, whether it be a race win or what. I never think about what it would be like to win X, you know, whatever it might be. I just live in that moment and, and see how it all plays out. But certainly it will be a, a big celebration knowing, you know, how long it's been uh, coming. You mentioned that you had a relationship with the Jordan brand for over a decade. What does your shoe collection look like? And do you have a favorite pair or pairs of Jordans? I mean, my favorite pair are the Dior's. The, the Dior ones, um, my second favorite would probably be the Travis Scott ones. But, I mean, I have a lot of them. You know, part of the great perks of being with those guys is they send you one of everything that they make. So, again, every month it's just boxes and boxes that I got to go through and, and of apparel and shoes and everything that, that you can imagine that they make, they, they send one of. So you get a lot of different uh, stuff that you get to go through. But a lot of it, you know, I, I, I give to my friends because I, I, I handpick a few things here and there. And I, I can only keep so much stuff in the closet. So one thing I wish I would have done early uh, early in my life was was keep all the shoes even that I didn't want to keep because I didn't know either what they were worth or the value or anything is I just gave them to friends. And I wish I would just kept them all in a warehouse and say, you know, one day go back and look at this tremendous collection of shoes to figure out uh, and let my kids go through them and see what, uh, see what all we got. Benny, can I chat you my address? Because I'd like to be friends so you can send me some Jordan yeah. stuff. Give right. me the key to that storage bin. Yeah, right? <laughs> do you have like a collection set up? I know people who do collect sneakers, they have like the trophy wall. What's yours look like? It's just a lot of, you know, different you know, designer ones or athletic ones that I keep, you know, my shoe rack probably, I don't know, probably holds 150 pair somewhere in that range. So it's full and there's still stuff on the floor. So, you know, it's just one of those things where I can't keep up with, you know, the production in which they have and, and I have a tough time letting some stuff go. Danny, here on Endless Hustle, our mission is to discover how athletes at the top of their profession continue to elevate. How has your partnership with Jordan and Wallace helped you continue to evolve your mindset both on and off the track? It's a new challenge for me. I mean, you know, racing is as much of a challenge it is, as it is. You know, I feel like I, I, there's not one week I can't go and win. There's every Sunday is a new opportunity to go win. Uh, it used to be that Hey, this type of racetrack, I can't win at. I'm not good enough at this one or that one. I feel like, you know, we're beyond that now. And now, you know, this is my new blue sky of, you know, where can we take this team? Um, how can we get it better? Um, how can we grow it? And where are we going to take this thing into the future? So that's that's my passion project, even though it, it is a business, it's still my passion project of, you know, wh what I want to do with it in the future. And you know, ultimately building this thing up into a race winning championship contending team uh, is not going to be easy, but, you know, I, I'm going to enjoy the challenge and I surely won't, you know, make any shortcuts when it comes to doing it. And hopefully we can get it to the, the level that uh, I want to see it at in the next few years. Obviously working with Jordan, arguably the greatest winner in the history of sports, you've got to be able to take away some nuggets. Has there been one piece of advice that he's given you, Denny, that really resonates with you 
about winning and being the best that you can be? Well, I think a lot of, you know, the discussions I have with him on any given week is just staying focused on what I can control. And, you know, a lot of the things in our sport you can't control, whether it be pit stops or race strategy, caution flags, like you can't control those things. So it's just constantly focusing on making sure you're doing the, your job to the best of your ability. Beyond that, it's, you know, let the chips fall where they may. So don't get caught up too much in, in the things you can't control. I want to also ask you about a guy named LaMelo Ball. I know you're a big basketball fan. That's another one of Jordan's guys. How amazing has it been to see what Melo's been doing in Charlotte? Phenomenal. I mean, 19 years old, it's just amazing to see the athletic ability. And, and I find myself, when I watch their games, really just watching him. And when he gets the ball, it's like, oh, man, what's he going to do? Like, what what crazy spin move is he going to make or pass? It's You know, you, he's a resonating person that draws your eye. So uh, Charlotte has really needed someone like that for, for a very long time. Uh, Kimbo was kind of that guy for many, many years. But ultimately, you, you still, you know, they're still a young team that is learning. But I think they're really doing a great job uh, of winning right now. With, some, with a lot of young guys and, and looking forward to seeing where that franchise goes. Do you ever try to get crossover? So for instance, could you go to MJ and be like, hey, can we get LaMelo into a NASCAR car or someone that you admire to get him on the racetrack and see how they could do behind the wheel? My guess is they wouldn't do that well. Uh, it's just not that easy. Um, trust me, there's more chance of me hitting a three-point shot that a pro could not than them coming on a racetrack and running a faster lap time than us. That It's a 0% chance of that. So I always said that um, our, sport, our sport is the hardest to cross over to and uh, be competitive at. It's just too difficult. Danny, do you have in your contract a no basketball? I know you're, you're in a league, but you have two torn ACLs to prove it. I know Jordan had the for the love of the, love of the game clause that he could play basketball anytime, anywhere. Are you allowed to play pickup, you know, considering the injuries you've had? Uh, I, I am. Um, I, I think it's one of those things Joe prefers not to ask. But uh, if, if you asked him, he would prefer I didn't. But he knows that it's my way to unwind and, and, and exercise. So, you know, he, he understands that, look, you're the one taking the risk. Uh, as long as you're here on Sunday performing in that race card, uh, you can get hurt all you want. Just don't, don't hurt the team. I want to know what your game looks like. Both, by the way, both of us are basketball players. Both of us played in high school and I played in college. So I want to know what Denny Hamlin's game looks like on the court. Well, it wouldn't look good to you guys. I can assure you that because I've no, uh, I wouldn't have made any team uh, growing up. I realized pretty quick that I was not good at basketball. I'm just barely good enough now to, to get drafted in my own league. So um, not, not good. So uh, I mean, I, I've gotten better. I've certainly gotten better. I, I hate, you know, being terrible at anything. So I work really hard at it if I am terrible. Uh, but, you know, I've, I've moved myself from like a fourth, fifth rounder to like a second rounder in the draft. But I, I've reached my peak considering my age versus uh, talent. I heard Blaney was pretty good. Well, yeah, I mean, he's, what, 20-something. Um, so, of course – He's playing against a bunch of 40-year-olds, so he should be good. But, but no, he's just, he's just more agile. Got more speed, uh, faster side-to-side. -side. You know, typically, that's what you got when you got good knees. 
I would just be calling in favors if I was Denny. I'd be like, guys, I'm Denny Hamlin. First round pick, guys. Come yeah. on. I, I don't want to do that because I know I'm going to be hurting my own team. I'm not a number one guy. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show, Denny. Congrats on everything you're doing. Everything you guys have done with uh, Jordan and Bubba is just revolutionary and awesome. And congrats on the run towards the championship, man. You're awesome. All right. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Thanks so much, man. All right, folks. That was the current leader in the NASCAR standings, Denny Hamlin. You know, it's incredible, Matt. With him already cementing his name as a driver, it's going to be fascinating when you look back on this guy's career. What has he become more known for? a successful driver or having an ownership with Michael Jordan and having success in that arena that it's like being a player coach. It's like Bill Russell. I know that'll tickle your fancy because it's like, Hey, by the way, I'm one of the greatest players of all time, but not to mention I won two championships as a coach. That's like Denny's Denny's mark on NASCAR down the road. Yeah. He exudes that all business mentality. Even when talking to him, like you could tell this guy, you know, there's more than meets the eye. And not only is he in partnership with Michael Jordan, he's in partnership with Michael Jordan as a Michael Jordan fan. It's not like he's a NASCAR guy who saw a business opportunity. He grew up idolizing Michael Jordan, just like the rest of us. And he's one of the one in one billion people who actually get to work with him. So this is a fulfillment of his dream too, which is incredible for him. And I'm excited to see where this takes what Bubba Wallace and him and MJ. Yeah. I love that you get to work with your idol. Like he's like, ah, I'm immune to it. I'm cool. Meanwhile, if it was me, I would every time I call MJ be geeking out like a little fan, I would still be like, Michael, I love you. I know we're owners together, but I love you. But no, they, listen, that's the difference between Denny Hamlin and, and someone like me. You you become immune. You're a pro. Actually, I would be a pro too, Matt. I think I would handle it. How do you give Michael Jordan feedback? You know, it's like, dude, I, you know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe once you get there, the allure wears off and it's more of just a business partnership. But I don't know. That would take me a long time. I feel like he'd be rubbing his chin while he's listening to you while five of the championship rings on, on his right hand. And then he quickly scratches the side of his head. And on his left hand, he has a sixth championship ring. And you're just like, yeah, I'll shut up now. But listen, whatever they're doing is working. And more importantly, what they've done for the sport, what they are doing for the sport is going to leave a lasting legacy. And I think that's incredible. Our next guess is... A guy who surprised me, Matt. So look, defensive linemen, they're not the, the most heralded position in football. Where You're always going to think of the Bradys and the Peyton Mannings or the OBJs. The skill position guys are the ones who are going to always get the glory. We had no idea what to expect from Lawrence Guy. And you, even being a Patriots fan, had no idea what to expect. This guy came in. He was all personality. I was like, man, someone get this guy in a broadcast booth because he just looks cool. He sounds cool. I loved L guy. Really great guy. Yeah. I mean, our, the Patriots defense has kind of ebbed and flowed over the past five or so years. And he has always been the guy to be a rock in, in the middle there. And I don't know. And Belichick loves him. Brady loves him. Brady's interacting with him on social media. And, you know, you can tell he's just a lunch pail guy. He came into the league, you know, as unheralded. 
he was first two years in the league, he was a practice squad guy. And now he's a Patriots all decade team or so. This guy has climbed the top of the mountain. He has rolled the rock up to the top of the mountain and he deserves all the shine that comes to him. I'm glad to have Lawrence Guy on here. Big fan. He's obviously a free agent again. So I hope for your sake, Belichick brings him back because Belichick threw like a billion dollars at a million other players. So I hope they he throws some Lawrence Guy some of that money. But if not, as of the recording of this, he was just visiting the Dolphins. By the way, Miami, not a bad place to end up as a consolation prize if that's who ends up signing him. So, Lawrence, we're big fans of yours. Wherever you end up, man, we're going to be cheering for you. One other point before we get to this interview. When you guys listen to this, there's a moment in this interview where Lawrence Guy literally takes us in the film room. We talk to him about the dynamics of playing on the defensive line, and he breaks it down almost like a master class. You guys have to listen to this because when you hear the, the the strategy that goes into something that looks so easy on TV, your respect for what these guys are doing in the trenches is go times a hundred. So without further ado, here is Lawrence Guy. All right, joyous day here on the Endless Hustle today as we invite on Patriots captain, Super Bowl champion and all-decade defensive tackle, Lawrence Guy. Lawrence, thanks for joining. Oh, thank you for having me on today. Not a problem. Lawrence, I know I introduced you as a Patriot, but you're a free agent, and the NFL's negotiating period started literally minutes ago. You stated you wanted to play, keep playing for the Patriots, but are there any developments in that realm? Well, you know, free agency free agency. Um, you, don't, you don't know where it's going to take you. Um, it could be possibly be back in the wing, and it could possibly be somewhere else. It all depends on how it goes. Um, everybody got the opportunity to be a free agent and that gives teams and, and players the advantage to see what's really out there and, and what the team values you at. Have you had anybody reach out to you? I know it's, it's been like an hour, but uh, I know teams. Yeah, you know, the, you know, there's interest. Everybody has the interest in everything and you go through the process of, of all of that and go through the negotiation conversations, but ain't nothing there until the paper is there and signed, you know. Um, there's been many of people say, oh, yeah, had this deal done, had this deal. Then all of a sudden, this next team is coming out of nowhere and, uh, and, and scoops you up. Like uh, a good story of mine was um, Jeff Allen. He was telling me he was going to, I want to say, I can't remember the organization. He was going to sign, about to sign on a paper. Agent got a phone call right two minutes before they got the contract. Said, Houston wants you for this much. Boom, he went up to Houston. I was, like, it was, I was like, it was that fast. He was like, yeah, I literally, he was like, I had a contract in my hand. I was about to sign on it and, and send it off. And all of a sudden you get a phone call. But that's how a free agency is. It's just unexpected. You'd be like, okay, I'm, this is where I'm going. And all of a sudden somebody else just comes in. I'm like, well, we're going to offer you this. And you'd be like, oh, okay, never mind then. Oh, my God, it's wild. Is it like dating? Uh, is it like dating in the fact where if you text, let's say, a girl and you don't get a response right away, you're like, ah, she isn't that interested. Or do you guys look at it like that? Or is it just a waiting game? Like, what are the internal dynamics? Oh, she's unique. Uh, like, I never thought four years ago I was going to be a patriot. Um, if one of those things, like, hey, they threw interest in you. And um, they call and say, hey, can he come up tonight? All of a sudden, I went up there on a red eye, then signed a deal the next day. It's one of those things. It's just unexpectedly. Um, it, it's, it's a business at the end of the day. Everybody has terms and agreements and everybody has – uh, a certain value is this 
well, that one girl that you thought you wasn't wasn't interested, it's not automatically interested. It's something like that. So it, it's exciting uh, on both halves of it. Um, just the same that you get to be a part of it. Because a lot of players don't even get to hit free agency ever. You know, a lot of people don't even make it to the opportunity or make it through the years to, to do that. But when you're able to do it and, and get that experience, um, it, it's, it's nerve-wracking sometimes. But as you keep going, you, you just understand um, your performance speaks for itself. Your film speaks for itself. So all you can control is what you control on the field. Everything else you let your agents do, and they can control all the other aspects of it. All right, I want to take you back four years. You get the call that the Pats want to meet with you. Obviously, Belichick is Belichick. You're flying there. What's going through your head? You've got to be like, holy cow, I'm walking in to meet Belichick and I'm walking in Brady's building. Like, what's going through your head? Um, it was March, I want to say, 9th, not, March 10th, and it was still snowing. And I'm like, uh, I don't got the outfit for this. Uh, I came in there. I, I, I literally was not dressed. I was just for the warm weather. I was just in Arizona and I was just for the warm weather, so I literally took a red eye and had no winter clothes. I came out there for reason, and I've never had a, a, a just a, a, a long sleeve uh, shirt on and, and some jeans. And I was like, I wasn't even prepared to, to come up here tonight. Like when I met, uh, I met, I met Matt, Matt Patricia, Ryan Flores, and uh, Brendan Daly. That's the first people I met. Got in the building, and I can tell you, we had like a three-hour this breakdown of film. Just going through different schemes, going through different uh, prayer recognitions, if it's a zone, if it's a st stretch. What do you call that a stretch? Do you call that a zone? I'm like, well, technically it's all the same play. And he'd be like, but break it down for me. How is that a zone? You'd be like, okay, these went through that. Then Bills is straightforward. You know, he he's a straight shooter. This is how it is. This is what we're looking at. Let, let's get something worked on. And they put me in a hotel and then everything went from there. But that, I think that's the best thing about when you, when you speak to Bill, he speaks to you with honesty and he's and he, not going to sugarcoat it. And you don't want people to sugarcoat it. Like a lot of people are like, oh, man, we do this, we do that. And all, it ain't true. He's going to keep it real honest with you. Same as Matic, he keep it real honest with you. Say, this is what we're able to do. This is what we want you to do in our system. Um, we hope you can do it. You got to love it. The Pats bring in free agents and put them through like a calculus exam as soon as they walk in. They're like, speed test, get ready. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it was it was amazing. They're like, you want some coffee? I'm like, yeah. Like, let me get like two, three cups of coffee. Let let this go in it. And then they they hit you with like an examination. Um, at the time, right there, like if you look at that room right there, there's two head coaches in that room. Um, that year it was it was Matty P and Brian Flores just sitting there just going back and forth. Just like, hey, how do you feel about this play? How do you feel like this play? Because then they evaluate how you feel about certain players and see where you're at. Then they just ask this who you are as a person and how you develop. I, I met mo most of them coming out of my rookie year. And I was 10 years, well, that, at that time, it was like six years ago. That's like, well, I met you when you was 20. Cause um, I came out early. So I, I entered the draft. I just turned 21 before, right before the draft. If I met you when you was like 20, that's how I felt about you. And you were like, well, I grew. <laughs> I understand everybody has maturity um, and everybody grows up a little. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask, because you're a seventh rounder. You bounced around to a few different teams in your first few seasons, hit your stride with your Ravens a little bit, and then took it to a whole nother level with the Pats. How much do you credit that to kind of Belichick and the franchise, and how much of it is you just maturing as a player? I look at it like this. Sooner or later in your career, if you make it long enough like I make it, you're going to bounce around. 
you gonna do it in the beginning or are you gonna do it in? It's not a lot of people that say, yeah, I've been on this one team for, for a whole It's very rare. You get a, a few of them. But nowadays in the NFL, you're going to bounce around. So I, I credit a lot of it to a lot of veterans, a lot of my old heads that, that took me on their wings, like uh, Corey Rennie. He, when I got to Indy, he was like, hey, this is how I see it. Let me help you out. And he took me under his wings a little bit. When I got the Chargers, it was a very uh, young team, so it was a little bit different. But I tell people it wasn't for um, Jared Johnson. I went and got the job with the, the Ravens. Like, he was my so-called, like, hey, run my resume. He, he, he signed that paper and said, hey, here goes your resume. I'm going to sign and put my name on it. Told the Ravens I was a good player because they called me. They called him and asked him how I was as a player. And he said he's a great player to have on the team. But uh, when I got to the Ravens, you know, it was a lot of those veterans there. You got Haloti, You got Sis. You got all, all those great players. But Clarence Brooks was, was the D-line coach that really – it was like, hey, we're going to make you to who you're going to, you're supposed to be. Like, you have all the talent in the world. You need to build your confidence back up, and we're going to continue to, to grind it out. And when you have a coach that, that's that invested in you, it's going to be that honest with you, it's going to consistently want to coach everybody. Not a lot of people want to coach everybody, but he wanted to coach everybody and make everybody better. And that helped me grow. Then Joe Colin came in. And he did the same. He's like, we're going to switch the style of this is how we coach the D-line. This is how I do it. And everything was a little bit different. Then when I got to New England, it makes you push and be a better you. You know, it, it was to the point where they're like, hey, you're going to be the best regardless. Oh, this is my little. Hello. What's your Hello. name? What's your name? Adriana. Adriana? Adriana. Adriana. Hi, baby. Go, babe. Um, yeah, so. It was one of those things that they make you better. Even if you didn't want it, they're going to do it. Even if you couldn't do it. And, and like I said, a lot, not a lot of people could make it in that organization. You see, every year you'll see four or five people retire. you like, it's some random thing. Like, hey, he just signed a deal. He was retired. This person retired. This person. It's not meant for a lot of people because they, they push you to the limits to where you're going to become better. And when you do, you're glad that you went through that. And when, like, veterans or, or rookies come in, I, I tell them all the time, like, this is standing here that you're going to get pushed to the limit where you want to fight back, but you have to suck your pride in and be like, hey, I understand this. It's for the bigger goal. I'm going to be a bad player after. After so much success, this was obviously more of a down year for you guys in Belichick. How do you reconcile that? Because – you're at the top of the mountain for so long to actually have a down year. What goes on? That's the NFL. You know, everybody's going to have the ups and down years. It's just what happens. You, you can look at, uh, you look at like one of the best defenses in, in the NFL in the 80s, right? The, the Bears were, were killing it. They had their up years and they started having the down years. The Miami had the up years and the down years. It all depends on what you're going to be like. Right now, it's a lot of diversity in the NFL. It's a lot of teams that are growing up. It's a new generation of players coming in. So it's just all about how you continue to grow as organizations all around. You know, the Patriots organization, winning has always kind of overshadowed the stigma that it's not fun to play there. How difficult was it this year to immerse yourself in that all-business mentality when there wasn't that treasure at the end of the rainbow? Well, you're playing for your teammates, right? When you play for your teammates, you're playing for your brothers. That's all that truly matters. Everybody has their, their opinion. Like, oh, it's not fun to do this. It's not fun to do that. 
But at the end of the day, if you get to go out there every single snap and play with your brother next to you, you're going to have fun. I've been on a lot of losing organizations where we lost games and I've been there. I didn't go out there and come to the locker room. And this, this, you know, you, you embrace the, the atmosphere and you understand that every single opportunity that you get to play in this league is not given, it's earned. And you get to have to enjoy it because not everybody can make it. Not everybody got this opportunity like you do to play. A lot of people are at home. A lot of people had an injury that, that ended their career early. There's a lot of different reasons why people are not able to make it. And being there and understanding that you get to lace your cleats up, you get to put the helmet on, you get to put the pads on, you can go out there every single day and compete. It's the best feeling in the world. Cause I, I've been in a situation, I've been there earlier in my career when I, when I sat for four weeks waiting for a phone call, when I got it, I was like, this is the opportunity not everybody gets to have. A lot of people don't ever get that phone call back. A lot of people don't get that, that phone call. Say you've been drafted, you've been signed. A lot of people don't have that experience of actually suiting up for a training camp practice. So those things that you do, you just suck them in and, and, and keep the memories and enjoy every step of it. So we just got some Pats news. Adam Schefter just tweeted, you guys just signed Jonu Smith from the Titans for 50 mil. Tight end, star tight end, 31 guaranteed. The reason I'm bringing this up, literally it just hit Twitter. The reason I'm bringing this up is I'm always fascinated at how Schefter, Jacina Anderson, how all these insiders just get the news and how they build these relationships. Do you have any idea how this all works? Like, is there allegiance to certain writers? Are there writers that kind of give you attention early on? And you're like, all right, I'm going to give Shefty the break when I sign my deal. Like, how does it all work? I don't know, but if you can let me know, I could be the source. <laughs> let me be the source. They're, they're doing something right. Are you be hearing something like, oh, that just happened? Like, really? Let me check it out. And nobody else knows it. I don't know who his sources is, but he got the elite source. But it's amazing how that really works, right? Like, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, oh okay, cool. Like, who's your source? I'm like, oh, no, you know, I heard it from an inside. Who, who's the inside source? Like, how do you get that gig? Yeah. There are guys who found out they've been traded online, which I think is the most fascinating part of it all. Like, Shefty knows who's getting traded before the even person being traded, which is banana land. Right? That His source is elite. They're like, hey. This person got traded. What? I, I got what? Oh, okay. Thanks for letting. Did you know I got traded? No. Okay. I guess I guess this is happening. <laughs> Do you guys monitor that as it's going? Like, obviously, free agency just hit and as everything's becoming official now. Are you on Twitter literally like scrolling to see where everybody's signing? No. Um, I've been I've been in the league for 10 years now. I'm going on my 11th. That's one of those things is you you just embrace it and be like, you know. If you read about every source and everybody's opinion, it really doesn't matter. Everybody has an opinion about certain players, to certain this, certain contracts. We're like, oh, this person, this, and this person. Half the time they're not even right. Half the time they did is just talking. He's like, I understand. But when you just feed into it, you just get all emotionally attached, which you just don't want to do. The biggest idea is this. As long as you have the support of your family and you have a good inner circle and you understand what, what you're looking for, your goals, then that's the only thing that can make you happy. Now with somebody else signed or or this person it is or this person that, you only could be is be happy for that individual. Like I'm happy that you was able to get your contract. I'm, I'm glad that this is able to happen. You've been very public growing up with learning disabilities, ADHD, dyslexia, that math one that I can't really pronounce. And now exactly. you're the 
Yeah, yeah. And now you're the captain on one of the greatest franchises in sports. Is this something you envisioned for yourself growing up or was it more of kind of a process? Well, everybody has a certain envision of I'm going to do this and I want to do that. My whole goal is to be the best me, you know, be the best person I could be, best person for, for people around me. Uh, my inner circle, even has a question because growing up, yeah, I, I struggle. Like everybody has a, a struggle in life, but there's people out there willing to give me an open hand to help me out and be like, hey, let me help you out. And through that time, is everybody can say this, and this is the best thing I tell people, even when you get help, it still takes you to, to have that passion to continue to get better. I can give you the resources. I can give you the people. That doesn't mean you have, you're going to show up. But it's like you leading a horse to water. You can't lead the water. You can't tell them to drink. So as you continue to help them, and and I got help, I continue to grow and grow, and I have bigger goals and bigger dreams. But like this is the next chapter for me. What can I do more? Um, got into college. I wanted a 3.0. I got a 3.0. I wanted to be at Arizona State. It's called a scholar baller. I mean, when you get that that 3.0, you, you get you get to be a scholar baller. Became a scholar baller. You know, going to NFL, I wanted to play to a certain amount of time. I'm continuing to, to live that dream and play that time. But that's the same thing why we started our foundation, Lawrence Scott Family Foundation, is we wanted that opportunity for everybody. I wanted everybody to have the opportunity to succeed and not have that the, uh, downfall. Like, well, I didn't have these materials. I didn't have a backpack. I didn't have food on the table. We wanted to bring that helping hand. Like, hey, I'm not giving your hand out because you have to come, you have to put yourself vulnerable to come out here and ask for help. And if you are, I'm going to continue to help the best way I can. Like people did for me, they didn't give me a, hand, a, a, a handout. They gave me the resources to help me to succeed and to grow. I want to talk to you about your shirt because I'm absolutely obsessed with super Mario. Oh yeah. I got the, Louis, the Mario Luigi. Got the Yoshi going. Are you a fan? Yeah, you know, I, I'm in a, I'm in a, a lot of anime. I'm in the anime, I'm in the cartoon. So it's one of those things when I saw the shirt, I brought back to my, my childhood and Mario Kart. And like, hey, who are you going to get? You're like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get Yoshi. I'm like, all right, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> same. We live the same life. I want to talk a little bit about the, uh, the foundation, though, because around New England, you're known as like a super philanthropic good guy. How did that Lawrence Guy Family Foundation come to be? And uh, what have you gained most from it? Me and my wife has been doing so much in the community since day one. I've been, I've been doing a turkey drive with my dad since I was in high school, um, did it in college. Um, then when I got in the in NFL, I continued to do it. But as I continue over the years doing it, somebody asked me one day, he'll, they're like, what's the organization? What are you doing? I said, this is just me trying to be a good person, use my platform to help out disadvantaged families that might struggle a little bit. And that's how it happened. My wife was like, you know what? We need to put a name to this. And we put the Lawrence Scott Family Foundation because it's family. We're helping out families. We're not helping our individuals. We're helping out everybody in the community to have a, a, a stepping stool, a, a help, um, a, a little bit of extra seed that you plant, you know? Like, we're, we're trying to plant seeds in the soil and let that grow. And I, I give people a lot of examples, and I, and I have two stories that tell you why I truly do this. One story is that Kyle Van Noy's foundation, the valet guy, um, was taking the car. And in my head, I'm like, dang, Kyle got violated. This is nice. Um, and he looked at me and said, can I pull you aside? I said, yeah. He said, 
I was just at your, your family give back at the Boys and Girls Club. He said, uh, I won one of the beds you raffled off. And I said, oh, that's awesome. I'm happy that you won it. And he was like, my bed had bug bugs. And my children didn't have a place to live and was trying to figure out where they were supposed to sleep at. So he said, I was able to get rid of that bed because the king size bed plus the sheets, everything that goes with it, because I'm able to have my kids have a bed now. And I got to get rid of the other bed. And that was that whole emotion is like, I, you just don't know. You don't know who you're helping out. You don't know what situation in life that you might come that you might need a little bit of help. I'm not talking about a hand, I'm talking about help. And that person, like, you just don't get how it was. And we donated nine tickets to another home game to him and his family because I was like, you don't understand. You had to open yourself up and be vulnerable enough to tell me the story out of all pride. You put it aside to understand that you needed a little bit of help during the holidays and you got it. And another story was that we donated um, elementary school got Thanksgiving dinners. Donated, every last kid got a Thanksgiving dinner. And the family uh, responded to me on Twitter telling me that they donated the dinner to the, to the church to their family was in need because they already had a Thanksgiving dinner. They're fortunate to have it. And that's the seed that, that we, we wanted to plant is that when you see a good deed done and you understand that you might not need it, and you're like, you know what, we don't need it, but I know there's somebody that might need it because they're struggling because of the pandemic, because they got laid off, that we're able to help them out and not just like, well, thank you, I don't have to pay for it this time. And I'm like, no, I got the means to pay for it. Now let me help somebody else out. And that's what the whole foundation is about, is to bring family together and to make sure that they use the domino effect to help out another individual if they're in need or they're struggling a little bit instead of just turning a blind line and be like, well, I can't do it this week. No, they go out the extra way. like, I have a little bit more. Let me give it to you. Amazing. As a warm weather guy, you come to New England. The first time you play in that frigid cold weather, what's it like? I was drafted by Green Bay. The first time I even saw snow, I was like, I was there and I was like, this is, like, I've seen snow, but I'm like, this is snow? Like, I remember the first time I experienced four-degree weather, and I was like, this is ridiculous. This has four degrees. But I can tell you, the coldest game I ever played in was against the Jets in 2008. It was negative nine with the windshield. Oh, the ref looked at me. I looked at the ref. He was like, how are you doing it? Because I don't wear sleeves. Because I don't believe defensive linemen are supposed to wear sleeves on your arms because offensive line could grab it. I'm old school. I got told by my old head, don't put sleeves on because they could grab them. So I'm over there freezing. And he called a TV timeout. I'm like, bro, we can't do no TV timeout. I'm like, it's too cold to be out here to do TV timeouts. I had my teammate almost got frostbite. Like, we got to continue this. He's like, oh, you think you're cold? He's like, you're running around. I'm sitting out here. You on the bench. You got your, your warm jacket on. I don't got no jacket on. Like, I'm freezing. I got four pairs of socks on. I'm like, my bad. <laughs> That's on you, though. You got to wear the sleeves. You can't do it. And I tell every, you, if you look at the older offensive alignment, defensive alignment, you look at it when they came to the league, you'll see a lot of them don't wear a sleeve. And it's, it's hard to say. It's frowned upon with some guys to wear sleeves. Some people, just, they're like, hey, this is who I am. They're wearing hot weather, cold weather. But a lot of the linemen, a lot of the linemen, do, they just don't wear sleeves. Is it a macho? No. You, you don't want them grabbing at you. You don't want them grab at you. Any less fabric they can to grab at you. 
Like you'll see a lot of people that just won't put them on because it's like there's no way you won't grab grab on that sleeve and get me because that's one less tackle, that's one less play you could be. You have to make it a little bit harder. That's why you wear those tight jerseys. That's the loose uh, up top, sucking the, the the pads where you can't yank on them. It's the same thing. The like you see people with the swag tag towels and be like, oh that's cool. But I'm gonna have one person say, oh that's cool and everything, and he yanked it on me one day. I'm like you know what, I ain't gonna wear that no more. <laughs> What was it like? Obviously, Brady meant so much to that franchise. He's the GOAT, undisputed. But watching him win a Super Bowl for another team, I know I'm going to get the cliche answer, was great, we're cheering for him, he's our friend. But there had to have been a part of you that was like, man, we miss Tom. God, it's so weird seeing him in another uniform. Well, I've been on different organizations, so I understand the business of it. I was happy. Like, I was so happy that he was able to uh, win the Super Bowls and able to still play you know he's going on years and years and years so i'm happy for that um aspect of it but you have to understand i think the best part about all that is, is he was tossing the super bowl trophy on the boat and everybody got upset about it i said no we got upset when Grunt teed off <laughs> with, with, with the with, with, as a bat with the ball i think like, it, it happens like it, it gets thrown around but it, it, it's a, a, a award that you get to do but you got to be ecstatics for him for what he's still able to do i think we should treat the super bowl trophy like the um uh NHL does. yeah everybody gets it for a day mm-hmm. do what you want to do with it bill belichick categorized this past season with covid as feeling like one long practice due to lack of fans was it difficult to get motivated and did the coaching staff do anything differently in practice or in meetings to kind of fill the void or boost the energy um playing with fans, no fans suck that's it. It, just, it just sucks. I have to be honest. Um, the best thing about it is you can hear their adjustments on the other sideline. Uh, you're like, oh, yeah, he's getting yelled at. I can hear that. Uh, but it, it's one of those situations how you don't get the, the big fireworks when you score touchdowns. You don't get the cheering of the crowd. So everybody had a home field advantage. Uh, and that's how I look at it. Like, hey, you got a home field advantage. You got a home field advantage. And you just went out there and tried to play the best ball that you can. But uh, I don't recommend playing with no fans at all. It's not, it's not the, the funnest thing to do. It's not exciting. As a defensive lineman, you guys don't get the glory that the quarterbacks and the receivers and the running backs get. What is it like when you do get noticed during film study? Is it kind of like an extra feeling of oomph because someone noticed what you're doing? Yeah, you know, our jobs ain't pretty. If you ain't a pass rusher, they'd be like, oh, man, it, but it's not a pretty job. The only way that the linebackers are ma- allowed to make plays, the outside rusher is allowed to do something, is that person inside or uh, maintaining it, you know, and that's the best thing about it. Like, hey, what did you do to maintain Like, this is what I do. And the players, like, especially in, all, in the last couple of locker rooms, they respect that, you know. They respect the, the, what you bring to the field, especially different teams. They're like, we understand – what that individual brings to the field. And, and it's amazing. You you get pointed out here and there. Uh, like, oh, look at what he did here. Look at what he did there. And you're like, oh, it's amazing how he was able to do that. But the, the difficult thing is, it's like somebody told me one day, that like, uh, I think it was playing um, Kansas City, and I got beat on leverage, got back in leverage, held a guy off with, with my left hand, maintained two gaps, and Matthew Slater came up to me and like, you're like, yeah, you made it look easy, but like that's probably one of the hardest things you could do. And I'm like, yeah, it's, it's very challenging. But 
as players, we respect that because we understand it ain't that easy to, to hold on two gaps at once. It ain't that easy to, to have a grown man sitting on, on your arm, you're just holding them locked out, waiting, being patient. That's the easiest thing to do. And coaches notify that and they, and they recognize that in film. It's like, this is what we, we, we were looking for. This is what we, we expect. It's not the easiest thing to do, but if you can do it, you'll be a, a good player. You'd mentioned the word leverage. You always hear from NFL analysts that word leverage, outside leverage, inside leverage. What the hell is leverage? Can you explain it to me? Pretty, pretty much is, is you have to put your body and your feet in, in the middle of, of, of the ground. You're trying to pretty much get your hand under a pad. You're trying to get your hand under a hand. You're trying to do everything you can to be lower than that person in some type of way. So they say the worst thing you can be is straight up. Like as D lineman, the worst thing you can be straight up, they just got all leverage over you. So you have to come off the ball at a certain angle, hit him a certain way. And like I said, I got beat on leverage. He got under my pads. I mean, he got both hands under my pads. He had both hands under my hands. So you have to literally retransition your feet. That's even hopping, taking a step back, and and still look like a little wheel under and under, and try to get leverage and try to get to the point where he cannot move through that one arm or those both arms. He's just stuck, this this trying to fight you, and he he's up high now. So that's the leverage battle. Like who who's lower? It's pretty much who is lower and who has this. Like he has outside leverage. That means no matter what happens, nobody can run outside because that one person is containing that gap like my situation I, I had two gaps to have to control all, all time so i have to have the leverage that is inside and outside so you have to be dominant with one hand and the other hand has to just steer and being able to throw back into the a gap so if i'm in a b gap i have to maintain that b gap but still have enough uh position to fall back in the opposite a gap and make sure they don't get a big gain of two to three so it's just how do you get that leverage to do it how do you get in that body position to get under that's your left hand. If you're on the left side, your left hand has to be under that arm. You have to knock that arm down to get your leverage. And it's all about momentum. Do you use his momentum or your momentum to throw him by or to go up? And sometimes you have to lose. And that's what people are saying. Like, what happens? Like, you have to lose the line of scrimmage sometimes just to make prevent a, a play or to get the leverage to go a different way. What's mind-boggling is listening to you right now, just how much you have to process the micro facts that you have to process within milliseconds as this all is happening is got to be insane. Does it become immune to you and it's just your body and your mind take over, like driving? When you drive a car, you really don't think about it? Or are you actually live processing this all as it's happening? You're doing it by film. You have to pay attention who is who you're playing against, what's this certain style of play. Like, oh, man, uh, Gabe Jackson uh, for the for, his, for with the, the Raiders, like he, he his favorite thing is he, he was so stocky and he and he used to hit you and get right under your pads and just lift you up under, under the breastplate. And you're like, man, it's the, the most difficult thing in the world. So you're like, how do I do it? Like, do I come off the ball and hit his hands down immediately and use head and try to reposition re my hand if I can have a better leverage on him? Or do, do you have a, a tackle that uses his chest to try to wrap you and hug you? How do you do it? So you just practice that in, uh, on the field and, and practice. You're like, hey, do this to me. Hey, I need you to hold me this way. I need you to do this. I need you to do that. And as, they, as you work through it, you kind of have an idea of what could work. In that first series, you start playing with it. You're like, okay, he likes to put his left hand under my, my, my breastplate if I'm on left side of it. 
uh, on left side. I said, okay. So I have to hit him with one hand, knock that hand down, come back over and see what he does. And that's why they said the first series, you start understanding. By the second series, you're like, okay, I get the drift. By the third series, you figured out pretty much everything. If you needed to do a certain thing, because you tried it out and saw what's worked. And the shorter the series, it takes more. So if you have a long uh, first series, they, they got 10 plays on you. You pretty much figured out what you needed to do in those 10 plays to just knock it out. That's why a lot of people say you need an eight to nine plays to actually get their adjustments to your adjustments and figure out how they're going to scheme you up as you're playing. And that's the best thing about it is they're going to adjust to the way you play as you're going to adjust to the way they play. It's just how do you beat that before they figure out how to beat you. That was so cool to listen to, dude. <laughs> An absolute masterclass right there. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's challenging. And like, it's one of those things is replacing your hands. How do you re- replace your hands without losing your, your leverage of your body weight between your hips to your feet and without getting tipped over? Mm-hmm. Like, you'll see a lot of people, they try to replace their hands and it's get tipped. You're like, oh, that was amazing. Look how powerful he is. I'm like, no, he just lost all equilibrium where he was trying to replace the hand. Like, this is the hardest thing in football is to keep one arm locked out and replace the other arm and continue to move sideways or go or uh, push them back without losing your balance and tripping. Wow. Lawrence, well, cool. I want to talk a little bit about Cam because Patriots legend Rodney Harrison made a bold claim saying that it was the worst decision Bill Belichick has ever made re-signing him. One could make the argument that Cam didn't really have the weapons on the outside to really prosper. But what strides do you think Cam will make in the offseason? How may he be used differently in the offense going forward? I, I can't answer that question because it's between them and him and how he does. August speaks on his character in the locker room and what he brings. Um, he brings a lot of leadership. He brings a lot of uh, 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 knowledge. But the most thing he is his work ethic out there. He's willing to get better every single day and challenge himself. He's not going to make excuses up and say, well, this is the reason why this happened or I should have done this. Or, no, he's going to take it all on himself and say, I need to play better. I need to hold on ball better. I need to do this. And that's what you really look for in a player. It's going to own up to his mistakes and get better. Yeah. It seems like with, you know, it wasn't the greatest season for the Patriots relatively, but he handled it in a way that was like, he couldn't have handled it any better. It seemed like from an outsider's perspective looking in. Um, but yeah, I think that was really his, his character really shown through last season. A hundred percent. You see the way he, he talked in the press media um, and you can see the way that he held himself during the games you don't see him throwing his helmet. You don't see him yelling and screaming and doing anything like that. He's very passionate, but he understands it, and he's going to hold it on his shoulders and not blame people. Like, that's not a finger pointer. He's like, I need to do better. I need to lead better, and that's what what he's about. And that's why you can understand why they resign him, because that's the type of person he is. As a captain, how do you get told or how do you get a sign that you're a captain? How does that process work? The team votes. The team votes you in. Um, every player has to vote, and they they counting that up. And the following day, they announce it. That's pretty. That's pretty much it. So it's, it's your peers voting you in. Is there any lobbying? Is it like high school where you guys are kind of lobbying to get votes? <laughs> no, there ain't no lobbying. They're like, oh man, put me in, man. I'll do this. If you do this, we get ice cream every Fridays. No, we don't get. We get none of that. Um, you just gain the respect from your teammates, and um, hopefully your efforts are 
in your your strides and trying to improve and help everybody else improve. And they and they just go there and they look to that and they was like, you know what? We want you to be that. And they all put your name down. They, they vote you in, and then you can continue that process. But the, pretty much to say your cows, I mean, you're sitting there doing extra strides to help improve everybody, not just one position group, not just one person. That you're there with an the open ear to always help somebody with on the field and off the field issues. Greatest Bill Belichick story. We've had both current and former Pats on, and we always get great Belichick stories. What's yours? Jeez. I wasn't even here for this because I was going, uh, my son was born, um, but they went paintballing and they thought Bill wasn't going to go paintball with them. And he said, they was just, he was just lighting people up with that paintball gun, shooting them all in the head. Boom, 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 just hitting them all like, boom, 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 boom. I was like, Bill? He was like, yeah. Like he, he was in a full go. I'm going to hit him, I'm going to hit him, I'm going to hit him. <laughs> That's a, it's like when he showed up to Randy Moss's Halloween party, nobody thought he'd show up and he showed up in a complete pirate outfit. He was the only one dressed up, right? <laughs> yeah. Amazing. All right, Lawrence Guy, you were incredible. All the luck going forward. Great job with your foundation. Continue to do good. And you're welcome back anytime. All right. Thank you for having me. Can't wait till the next time. All right, folks, that was Lawrence Guy. As of this taping, to our knowledge, he had not signed yet. So, Lawrence, like we said, you're always welcome back. And wherever you end up, man, we're going to be cheering for you. But I know Matt can definitely give you a big thank you for the years and the Super Bowl that you brought to his beloved Patriots. Sure, Ken Artie. Wherever he ends up, he's put his good years in here. And you know what? He's overcome so much to become who he is, and he should be an inspiration. So thank you, Lawrence Guy. Yeah, wherever he ends up, Matt, we'll all be cheering for him. All right, folks, that is another episode of Endless Hustle. We are back on Tuesday with a monster episode. We have arguably the greatest fighter in UFC history, George St. Pierre, joining us. He gives us a house tour during this interview, so you don't want to miss that. And guy was just absolutely awesome. And then our second guest is... One of the stars of Zack Snyder's Justice League, which pretty much took over the internet over the last week, Harry Lennox. He plays Martian Manhunter, and I'm pretty sure he's going to get a spinoff. All right, let's give him the plugs, Matt. Let's get him out of here. All right, the plugs here. you got to subscribe to Endless Hustle wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave a review if you'd like as well. You can watch on our YouTube channels, the interviews. Be sure to keep up with the latest in sports, entertainment, and lifestyle news on Bro Bible at Bro Bible on Instagram and Twitter, and Endless Hustle on Twitter at Endless Double Underscore Hustle and at Endless Hustle Pod on Instagram. You can follow my personal account at Mr. Cohan, K-E-O-H-A-N, and my friend Artie. I'm at Arthur Cade on Twitter and at it's me, Arthur Cade, on Instagram. Tuesday, guys, George St. Pierre and Martian Manhunter himself, Harry Lennox. We'll see y'all then. Peace.